Welcome back to 10 Blocks. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is John Hirschauer. He's an associate editor of the American Conservative, a 2022-23 Novak Fellow at the Fund for American Studies. He was formerly the William F. Buckley Fellow at the National Review, and he's the author of a long and quite brilliant piece uh, recently for City Journal entitled The Last Institution. Uh, it's a story about the push by activists and uh, the state government to close two facilities for the intellectually and developmentally disabled in Pennsylvania over the objections of the people actually living there and their families. It's, it's again, a, a really terrific and uh, moving story. Uh, John, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so your, your essay, uh, which is heavily researched and reported, looks at the Polk and Whitehaven centers in Pennsylvania, which the Commonwealth is in the process of closing. So I wonder, you know, just to uh, set the background for uh, folks who haven't read the story yet, what's what's been going on at the centers? Who's living there? Uh, you know, what's the state's case against them? And where do things stand currently? Sure. So I think to understand what's happening at Polk and Whitehaven now, you have to understand a little bit about the history of facilities like Polk and Whitehaven. People often get them confused with state hospitals for the mentally ill, um, but they're they're similar from the outside in appearance, at least. They're both situated on huge physical plants. Uh, they were built, Polk was built in 1896. Whitehaven used to be a tuberculosis sanatorium, but was converted to a uh, developmental disabilities facility in the 1950s. Um, and at one point in its history, Pennsylvania operated 23 uh, what were called state schools for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and the prevailing idea um, in the late 18th, uh, or excuse me, late 19th and early 20th centuries was that you were going to place people at these state schools when they were children or young adults, you were going to train them um, and give them some sort of vocational training and return them back to the community as adults hopefully with the sort of vocational skills required to support themselves in the community. And this sounds maybe paternalistic to modern ears, but at the time it was really revolutionary, the thought that somebody with an intellectual and developmental disability, Down syndrome, you know, what we later identified as autism, uh, conditions like that could be treated to, you know, treated as is maybe the wrong word, but people with those sorts of conditions could be taught skills and then reintegrated into their communities. And as I sort of go through in the piece, even in the 1920s and 30s at Polk, where there was a lot of, you know, there were the seeds of what would become some real abuse that developed at the, in, at the facility in the 1950s and 60s. You could kind of see the seeds of it in the, in the early 20th century, but significant numbers of the patients admitted to Polk in the early 20th century were returned to their homes and communities, often as farm hands and farm laborers with the skills that they learned at Polk Center. And so as time went on, um, you know, these 23 institutions became bywords for abuse and neglect. Parents dropped off their children at these places, having heard about the potential that their disabled child might be able to grow and adapt and learn new skills at these facilities. And what happened in time is that they took on increasingly less of an educational character and more of a custodial character. So you had patients who were pretty significantly disabled who were being admitted. Um, and it took so much, 
so many institutional resources to provide for these people and to meet their daily basic care needs that these institutions shifted their focus away from education and towards custodial care. And this begot a lot of the worst abuses that many people are probably familiar with hearing about these facilities. Will uh, Geraldo Rivera's expose at Willowbrook State School in New York, uh, 1968, or 1973, I think. And then there was a famous one in Pennsylvania at the Pennhurst State School called Suffer the Little Children. Um, you know, you, you just saw rows upon rows of disabled children huddled in day wards. Some of them were in cribs. Um, through the age of 10, 11, 12, they hadn't walked, so their development had been permanently stunted. So, I mean, there was terrible and, and terrific abuse um, in these facilities that, you know, whenever you talk about them today, it's it's worth at least situating that context in the background because it is what charges, you know, it provides a lot of the emotional charge for the conversations about these facilities. But what happened in the decades after those exposés and a lot of public pressure was brought to bear on these facilities um, the worst ones were shut down by and large, like Willowbrook State School was shut down by, I think, the later 80s, if not early 90s. Um, and there was a, an almost immediate push to downsize that facility after the abuses were brought to light. Uh, similar developments happened at Pennhurst and some of the other notorious institutions. And by 1971, um, Richard Nixon had signed an amendment to the Social Security Act, creating what at the time was called uh, the In Intermediate Care Facility Program for People with Mental Retardation. And basically what it did was any state that operated its state school and wanted to receive federal funding for the operation of that school. And again, by this point, by the 1970s, school is really a euphemism. These are not really schools anymore. These are residential custodial institutions. And a lot of them begin to shed that school language and they become quote unquote developmental centers or you know, some of them still retain the name training school just by inertia, but that no, no longer really reflects what these facilities do. Um, and so to operate their state schools, but to receive federal funding, they had to agree to like 260 pages worth of federal regulation talking about uh, staffing ratios. So like at Pennhurst in the 60s, you had two staff members caring for 80 disabled uh, individuals and children. So that's obviously a totally unacceptable ratio. Today, at most of these facilities that remain, you're talking about a three to one or four to one staff to patient ratio. So you have three or four staff members for every one patient reflecting the, you know, that's not just direct patient to, or excuse me, direct, you know, care workers. You also have administrators and custodians and so forth, but the the staffing ratios have totally been inverted. Um, and the types of people served in these centers changed over time. For the first, you know, for one point, I think 1973, the Individuals with Education Act was signed, meaning that all children, regardless of the severity of their disability, were guaranteed public education, which means that, except in the most rare circumstances, parents are not institutionalizing their developmentally disabled children anymore. But they're just being sent to regular schools now, right? Yeah, public schools. Specialized programs, but yeah. And so, you know, you have fewer children. I mean, it's a, it's a minuscule percentage. I mean, some states still have, you know, a handful of children in these types of institutions, but it's exceedingly rare. Um, and so what these facilities ended up doing was, was becoming sort of havens of last resort for the most difficult patients in the state who could not be served in a smaller community-based setting. And sort of just to add a little bit of context in terms of the deinstitutionalization process, uh, on the developmental disability side, I think when people hear the word deinstitutionalization, they think 
so often of people with mental illness who are living on sidewalks and street corners. Um, and this is a little bit of a different case in that a lot of the people who were discharged from these large facilities ended up succeeding, broadly speaking, in a less structured, less you know, uh, regimented environment like a group home or like an independent apartment. Um, and so the number of people who could stand to benefit maybe from institutional care decreased or, or substantially lower, I think, on the developmental disability side than it is on the mental illness side. But basically these facilities that exist and they've been gradually downsized and, and most of them have been closed. Now in Pennsylvania, there are only four left. Um, they serve you know, basically three populations as I, you know, broadly speaking. Number one, long stay patients who have lived at the facility for 40, 50, 60 years and don't wanna leave. Um, people with severe behavioral conditions such as autism, uh, not just regular autism, but severe autism. Uh, one of the parent or one of the individuals I profile in the piece, Joey Jennings, uh, you know, headbutted his mother, would throw televisions through walls. You know, another individual I profiled, you know, broke his school teacher's ribs and bit his own arm so hard that he needed intravenous antibiotics. I mean, really severe behavioral cases. Um, and then people with severe and serious persistent medical needs. So people who are bed bound 24 hours a day who need intensive uh, medical supports. The institutional model, and this is kind of where I'll leave it um, just in terms of the context, the institutional model provides these people with services that really can't be provided anywhere else. You know, you can't staff a 24-hour nursing unit in a group home. You can't have a psychiatrist around 24 hours a day in a group home. You can't have a doctor on grounds 24 hours a day in a group home. But the economy of scale available at an institution, so-called, and I think that that language is kind of pejorative and is intentionally used by advocates to suggest that these places aren't communities unto themselves, but I'll use it just for simplicity's sake. Um, these institutions are capable of bringing all these services to one central location because of the economy of scale. Um, and it's not to say that people with severe and serious disabilities aren't served in the community, often quite well, but one size uh, doesn't fit all. And that's sort of what I try to try to get at in this piece. Well, to, to speak to the push to shut these places on, and, and uh, one of the striking points you make in the piece is that deinstitutionalization, which is a familiar concept to city journal readers, is actually still going on because it's it's kind of the same push right now, right? So you, in your piece, you um, you discuss and interview several members of you know this this network of of activists, government officials, academics who really are opposed to these kind of institutions. Um, you know, and, and they followed this playbook that you also described. They pushed to limit the funding for the facilities. Then they cite a lack of funding as the reason they have to be closed down. And, you know, the, the reader comes away wondering, well, what, what's going to happen to these people? Because, uh, you know, they're often um, in situations where their their families aren't going to be able to take care of them properly. Or, as you you note, some, some of them have severe personality disorders. Um, you know, what's what's going to happen uh, to these people and what's, you know, why the push to shut these institutions down? What's the real driver behind it? So I, I think it's ideological and people like to frame it because it's a frame they understand easier. They like to say, oh, it's all about money. But I when you speak to these advocates, you realize very quickly. And I, I quote one woman in this piece. I told her, you know, like if you were made queen of the universe tomorrow was, I think, the way I put it to her on the call. 
um, would you shut down every remaining state institution in the United States? And she said, yes, I would. And, you know, even in their literature talking about how they want to go about closing these institutions, they caution the advocates not to bring up the cost of institutionalization because they say ultimately this is a civil rights issue and this, uh, you know, and that cost really doesn't have anything to do with it in terms of what's what's driving them. And so I think the most charitable way to under to explain their ideology, and I try to put myself in their their headspace, so to speak, because they really are emotionally charged about this issue. If I were somebody, let's say in the 1960s, who were abused, who was abused in a in an institutional setting, let's say, or I were mildly disabled, and I really should have never been institutionalized, and I saw all of the horrors that uh, went on at some of these facilities in in the 50s and 60s. I might understand the mindset of somebody who says, I got out of that facility, but I'm not going to sleep until every last one of those places is closed. Now, I, I wouldn't agree with it because I think, you know, you can't assume that everyone's experience of institutionalization, so-called, uh, is the same or that all institutions always and everywhere are the same. Um, and that people who say, as I cite in the piece, there are, you know, 271 of the 301 patients at these facilities who have been surveyed and were capable of responding to a uh, a proctor and were asked whether they wanted to stay at the facilities. They said, yes, I do. To me, that's sort of dispositive. But I, I can understand uh, an activist who maybe lived at one of these facilities and saw some abuses and said, you know what, like this is a the civil rights issue of, of our time from my perspective as a disabled person to make sure every last one of these institutions is closed down and has a plaque on it. And you can kind of see that triumphant reaction when these facilities close, these disability rights groups will host closure ceremonies and they'll ceremonially lock the front door. Uh, I know at a, at a facility in Connecticut, this is a story that's always been striking to me. And this was sort of what got me interested in the subject because I had a facility like this in my hometown. And I spoke to someone who used to work with one of the advocacy organizations in Connecticut. And she went into their break room one day and she saw on two opposite ends of the break room were uh, two bulletin boards. And on one end were a whole bunch of pictures from the closure ceremony of one of the two institutions in the state, Mansfield Training School. And if I recall correctly, I think she said there was a brick there taken from the administration building, you know, sort of taking a trophy. And then on the other end of the break room was an empty uh, bulletin board. And the woman asked uh, one of the employees there, well, what is that bulletin board for? And the, if I were, you know, recalling the conversation correctly, she said, that's for the day we close Southbury Training School, which was the other institution in the state. And so it takes on a very ceremonial and symbolic function to these advocate advocacy organizations to say, we're sort of removing the chains of oppression that are oppressing people with disabilities, that these institutions are, and that you'll often hear them talk about this, what talked about this way, that they are symbols of a past era when people with disabilities were shunted away and they become these sort of ideological totems and it becomes totally abstracted from the actual people who are working and living and eating and going to movies and doing all the things that they do at these facilities and seeming to actually enjoy their lives there. Um, and their families who have oftentimes, you know, waded through a lot of bureaucratic hurdles to get their son or daughter admitted to one of these facilities after having been in the community for 10, 20, 30 years and finding that nothing works. So it, it is a really interesting and I think undercovered ideological fight between two sides who feel they're sort of on the side of, of the angels and see any compromise with the existence of these institutions as something that they simply can't abide. What, what are the 
you know, the family's going to do in this, if the campaign is successful and these last institutions are closed. Um, you know, not everybody can obviously afford private care. Uh, Community-based options aren't always uh, desirable. So, um, you know, what are the residents going to do? What are the families saying? Uh, maybe describe a little bit more some of the people um, you talked with who were really involved with these institutions uh, on the deepest level. Sure. So I think different types of patients will have different types of experiences when they're discharged. So, that, so the first thing to note for context sake is that Pennsylvania is still going to keep two of its four state institutions open for the time being. Now, when I asked, and this is something I say in the piece, when I asked the, um, at the time, this she's since left the department, but when I asked the head of the Department of Human Services in Pennsylvania, whether these two remaining institutions would one day be closed, she told me, you know, quote, that's uh, certainly uh, a possibility, that's certainly a possible future. So they're, they're not at all closing the door on the possibility that these institutions, that some of the residents at Polk and Whitehaven are being moved to, will themselves be closed one day in the future. Um, but those for now remain options. And a lot of the people living at these two centers are just transferring to one of those other two state institutions in Evansburg and Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania. Um, some will move to private institutions, but the same forces that are trying to close admissions to public institutions are putting similar pressure on private institutions around the state. And so there's a similar dearth of what are called intermediate care facility ICF beds uh, on, on the private side in Pennsylvania. Um, and some of them will go to group homes and community-based settings. And frankly, some of them might do quite well and might be quite happy that they left. That's happened to plenty of individuals around the country who at one time didn't want to leave an institution, were forcibly discharged by disability rights advocates and found out, you know what, I, I like living in a, in a less restrictive setting. And maybe that will happen for some people. But And I, I actually stipulate that it will. I'm sure that it will. But when you look around the country at what happens when these places are forcibly closed down, because that's what this is. This isn't sort of, you know, by attrition, people naturally moving out and making other selections. This is something that a closure that was done prematurely um, and it is being imposed on people. You see that number one, death is often associated with it. I mean, some people call it transfer trauma. Uh, there are all sorts of terms for, you know, dislocation syndrome or whatever. There are a million different ways to describe it. But in, in I think it was 2013, the state of Georgia, and I might have my, my year wrong, but I cited in the piece and you can, you can find it there. The Augusta Chronicle has a great article about it. In 2013, uh, the Department of Justice uh, under Barack Obama had required the state of Georgia to move out about 500 people who had been diagnosed with severe or profound, you know, mental retardation, so-called or developmental disabilities, whichever term you want to use. Um, and about 82 of those 500 had died unexpectedly within the first three years after having been moved out of the institutions. Now, you, you can't say one-to-one -one that it was the discharge that caused it. A lot of the people living in these facilities are old and elderly, okay? But it's also the case that, you know, the, the DOJ um, and, or the Augusta Chronicle that, that really did a deep dive on this, you know, classified them as unexpected deaths. And the DOJ ultimately had to come in and kind of adjust their timeline for institutional closure on the basis of that mortality. Um, and so that, that's, a, that's a, a morbid, but unfortunately a real possibility for some of these people who are being discharged. I, I don't know how large it will be. In Pennsylvania, for example, um, they shut down a center called Hamburg Center in 2011. And 
11 of the 82 residents of Hamburg died within three years of the closure announcement. So that's a, uh, you know, that's a possibility for, for some of the residents. I mean, other residents, uh, yes, yeah, like I said, may go into group homes. Um, but the, the unfortunate thing is once you close these institutions, there's really no opening them back up. And what other states have done, and this, this was what I was going to say, lost my train of thought for a moment, but about, you know, Pennsylvania isn't the first state to move in this direction. I mean, every, at least every state has shut down at least one of their state operated institutions for people with developmental disabilities, and 17 states have shut down all of them. Uh, those states that have shut down all of their uh, public disability institutions place their most severe cases often in number one, private facilities, private equivalents to the state institutions, number two, public mental hospitals, so state hospitals um, for the mentally ill um, or the criminally insane. Um, they're not placed alongside the criminally insane, but they are at root the same facilities. Um, or in nursing homes in Indiana, I think they have about 1,500 people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who are being served in regular nursing homes where you might, you know, find, you know, you might place your own grandmother or something. Um, so, so this is what happens in other states when you close these specialized facilities down. Right. You're, you're shifting the, the problem rather than helping solve the problem uh, in, in many ways. And it, it mirrors the, you know, the entire history of deinstitutionalization when, when the mental asylum started being closed for, for real histories of abuse, it, it, the alternative often became homelessness on the streets and and a significant part of our homelessness problem in this country uh, is made up of mentally ill people who've been you know deinstitutionalized or never institutionalized so it's it's a, a very significant problem and a human tragedy um you know in in that context uh, uh, finally you know we should mention what has been a major development in mental health policy in New York City uh, where uh, Mayor um, Adams, Eric Adams, has uh, sent a directive to outreach workers, uh, city hospitals, first responders, saying that they do possess the legal authority to institutionalize severely mentally ill residents who pose a danger to themselves. You know, this isn't really a, a change in the law. Um, and it you know, it doesn't address the deeper problems with the city's mental health care, such as uh, the lack of capacity, the lack of, of beds. Uh, but, you know, it, it does suggest perhaps changing attitudes toward the severely mentally ill or greater recognition that uh, we're, we're not dealing with that population effectively. Um, you know, and you, you could see this even in a recent sympathetic New York Times profile of a psychologist, famous psychologist, who's written for City Journal a number of times, E. Fuller Torrey, um, who has long advocated this kind of a policy that Adams is is now advocating. So I, I wonder, you know, what you think about that, and if if that's a heartening sign. I think I think it is, and it's funny you mentioned E. Fuller Torrey. I think he he's written several several books that I I think are just like canonical and definitive on deinstitutionalization, but. One that comes to mind in the context of New York, his book, Insanity, uh, The Insanity Offense, I think it was written in the 90s, talks about really how deinstitutionalization on the mental illness side, moving away from the developmental disability side, how it really played out over time and, and just how that sort of played out in New York as well. So, you know, New York, 
still operates, and, and this is, a, I think, a misconception when people talk about deinstitutionalization, and this is something you mentioned earlier, people assume that that means that all of the institutions were closed when it's probably more accurate to say that they were downsized, like, uh, you know, the Pilgrim Psychiatric Center in New York, which housed like 5,000 patients in the 1950s and was built in the early 20th century, still around, you know, Pilgrim Psychiatric Center still there, just houses like, you know, 300 or 400 people now. Um, and the types of people that it's that it's serving obviously has has changed. And New York has, you know, still operates 23 uh, state psychiatric centers, which is what they call, I mean, other states call them state hospitals, but it's it's just different nomenclature for the same thing. And, you know, this is, they haven't reduced the number of their hospitals, though they have closed some as much as they have their bed capacity. And one thing you notice when you sort of chart deinstitutionalization over time on the mental illness side is you see that in the early days of deinstitutionalization, and this holds in New York and really across the country, the first round of deinstitutionalization, so in the 50s, 60s, and even into the early 70s, the types of patients who are being discharged from these hospitals are, for the most part, you know, and, and this is no rule is absolute, but you have, you know, people who should have never been institutionalized in the first place, you know, people with quote unquote hysteria or whatever, you know, these neurotic illnesses that today we would never institutionalize someone for. Um, and also, you know, especially in the 50s and 60s, you might have committed your grandmother who was senile to a state hospital because there were no nursing homes around at the time. It wasn't until the nursing home program really got off the ground in the 60s that people stopped sending their you know, demented elderly relatives to state hospitals. So that's another population that was discharged. And so you don't begin to see a lot of the next negative externalities associated with deinstitutionalization in those early years, because the, the patients who are being discharged are by and large those who handled medication well, and then people in those other two groups who really never should have been in a state psychiatric hospital. But it's then in the 80s and 90s where you start to see the push to discharge even you know the people on the quote unquote backwards of the asylum, right? The people who were the hardest patient, the hardest cases at the facility, uh, there was a push to, to move those people out in the name of liberation and all the civil rights you know uh, litigation that has been directed by nonprofit groups and, and even the Department of Justice um, against various states. And this is, you see this exact phenomenon in New York where Andrew Goldstein, who killed Kendra, I think Webdale is the last name. I could could be wrong on that, but ultimately Kendra's law in New York was named after, after her. He was, you know, he bounced around several different state psychiatric hospitals in New York tried to get himself committed to Creedmoor Psychiatric Center in Queens um, and was ultimately turned away because, I mean, he himself wanted to get admitted because he's like, I'm, I'm dangerous, I'm spiraling out of control. And Creedmoor was like, no, we don't have the beds for you. He goes out and he kills uh, he kills Kendra. It, it is, yes, it's Kendra Webb. Yeah, she was a journalist uh, from Buffalo um, who was killed in by, by Goldstein. And, uh, um, you know, the, the law about uh, involuntary commitment in certain cases uh, was was named after her. Yes. And so so that's you know one example where you start to see these negative externalities of homelessness, increases in violent crime, especially in urban areas, um, really takes off as a result of deinstitutionalization. And it's not a one-to-one -one thing where deinstitutionalization is the only thing driving it, of course, but it becomes a much more significant contributor in the 70s, 80s, and into the early 90s. 
And then today, I mean, the logic of discharging the hardest cases, having more negative externalities is even more true today, where every force, it seems like, is arrayed against a person's being committed to a psychiatric hospital. So you have state departments of health that are doing everything they can to divert people from the institutional setting, and they're trying to get them in a community-based setting. You have the Department of Justice that's sitting on the edge of its seat, waiting to pounce and litigate as soon as too many people are in psychiatric hospitals. You have all of the advocacy and nonprofit groups that are putting pressures on states, putting pressure on states to reduce their inpatient capacity. And so if you think about the type of person who can clear all of those hurdles and still be admitted to a state mental institution in year of our Lord 2022, it's a pretty hard case, right? I mean, these are these are really the sickest people. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but but strictly speaking, they're the most mentally ill people often. And, you know, no rule again is absolute, but most of the people who are living at these state hospitals in, in 2022 are just several magnitudes, orders of magnitude sicker than the average patient at a state psychiatric hospital in 1950. And so when these advocacy groups push to close down beds in New York, and this is something that we saw with Marshall Simon and the uh, who recently pushed someone in front of the moving subway train, um, he had been in and out of Bellevue, he was in and out of state hospitals, um, you know, in and out of state psychiatric centers, but the state of New York continued it's now in its 10th year of its quote unquote transformation plan to reduce the number of state uh, psychiatric beds uh, available in, you know, in the name of community-based settings. So I think it's heartening to your point. I just read today that Kathy Hochul wants to budget 1100 new psychiatric beds, which I think is excellent. I mean, that almost doubles the state's capacity. Now where those state, where those beds are going to be located, whether they're going to be in the state psychiatric hospitals or whether they're going to be, you know, uh, in emergency rooms, you know, that will kind of color the the outcome of of, of how well I think, uh, how far I think those 1100 beds are going to go, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. And I'm, I'm heartened to see, even if it's too little too late for for many of the victims of this policy, I, I think that uh, any progress is good progress on this issue. Well, John, that was a very illuminating. Thank you for walking us through both the a situation in Pennsylvania with the developmentally disabled and uh, addressing uh, this analogous uh, situation uh, with the severely mentally ill. Um, don't forget to check out uh, John's work for City Journal, including this wonderful story. He's done, done one other piece for us, if I remember correctly. Uh, we'll link to his author page in the description, and that's at www.city-journal.org. The story, again, is called The Last Institutions. Uh, you can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And John Hershauer is on Twitter, and uh, it's at John Hershauer. So as always, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a ratings on iTunes. And John, thanks again very much for the terrific story and for coming on 10 Block. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.